one thing in your life that you say, without this, I could not be happy. Without this, I could not possibly possess joy. Life only has meaning with blank. Uh, in his book, uh, The Great Divorce, famed C.S. Lewis has, he, he sort of imagines 10 different episodes where in which someone has died and they are met on the other side by an angel. And in this fictitious story, uh, the angel is there to lead these recently deceased people to heaven's gates. But there's one condition for entry into those gates. You have to simply trust the angel. You have to be led by the angel completely. So the story goes that an artist has died and the angel is leading that artist by the hand and the angel tries to convince the artist to come to heaven, to be led into heaven, describing to him the, 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 the stunning beauty that is in there. It's incredible. It's completely compelling to the artist. He starts contemplating all the incredible paintings he will be able to partake of. But the angel tells him, no, 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 there's no need for you to paint. There's no need for you to paint because heaven is beautiful enough. There's no need. And instead, we just want you to be there. The angel tells him, I just want you to exist inside, to enjoy eternity. Well, the artist goes, and he starts to slow down and then eventually he stops and he removes his hand from the angel and he refuses to go in, opting instead to remain that he would rather paint heaven than be inside of heaven. And so on and so on the story goes, the angel leads you know, poets and musicians all refusing entrance, every single one refusing entrance. Again, so the question that I pose to all of us is, without this, I could not be happy. If I didn't have this, I would not possess joy. Friends, what those questions or those statements, what Lewis's story is bringing us to is the dark reality of idolatry. Idolatry. Now, I can only probably assume that for the most part, that the thoughts of idols or guys saying on the stage, idolatries or idols brings up a bit of religiosity. That sounds very religious. That sounds very foreign. Or maybe even for some here, we're automatically thinking that sounds very mythical, perhaps. But friends, I am here today to tell you that they are far more personal, far more real, and far more present than one might think. Idolatry describes the curvature of the human heart. Idolatry hungers and it licks its lips and it demands and it depends on and it worships something satisfying yet compromises for substitutions. Like a parched man in the desert craving crisp cold water and says, no, no, I'll take that cup of salt water. It has the resemblance of the divine yet if consumed is deathly or like an artist who chooses to paint rather than the eternal. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, which should be open in front of you, what we have is Jesus identifying one of the most prominent, terrorizing idols in human history. Again, it's not a shock to anybody. We all know what series we're in. So let's read it together, starting in verse 13. This is, this is Jesus speaking. No servant can serve two 
masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, here it is, money. So Collector Church, what we just read, and I hope this sort of sinks in because this is pretty crazy and epic. What we just read is Christ's conclusion of what's considered to be, what's considered to be the most disturbing of parables within all of the gospel. This is considered the most disturbing story Christ ever told. To be honest, pastors and teachers and writers and interpreters avoid it like the plague. I actually read this week, Luke chapter 16 is what some call a exegetical hornet's nest. So yay for me. So I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. Now, if you're curious why it's a hornet's nest, well, to very, very quickly recap last week, for those who may not have been here, Christ's short story goes like this. There was a rich man who had a manager and also called a steward. This steward was a combination of COO and CFO meaning the steward was this, this sort of a rough, Scrooge-like businessman for the rich man. And the steward ran this rich man's entire estate, and he invested his money, and so on and so forth. But then in Act 2 of Jesus' story, the rich man fires the steward for his Scrooge-like tendencies. He fires him, and he calls him to account, and the steward knows the gig is up. And in his current state, he starts freaking out. Has anybody been fired before? There's this, especially in Los Angeles, I'm going to die, right? So there's this, you've never been fired before. Liar, liar. So, just joking. But there's this immediate freaking out. This steward has that same, okay? So what he does is he figures out how to survive past his imminent termination. This is what he does. He takes all the rich man's creditors and he takes them and he gives them massive discounts on their debts to the rich man. To Why? win their favor. Oh, he's genius. By doing this, he defrauds his old boss, but then gathering goodwill for himself in hopes of future work. So he invites those who have debts with a rich man, cuts them in half. So think about it this way. If somebody walked up to you and said, hey, all of your student loans, cut in half. Or somebody says, your car payment, cut in half. Your mortgage, cut in half. Or for us in LA, your rent, cut in half. Would we not love and want to marry that person right away? <laughs> right? That would happen immediately. So this manager is smart. He's making outside relationships. But here's the thing. What we're about to read now is what makes this parable disturbing. It makes it confusing. Verse 8 of chapter 16, if you want to take a gander. The master, it says commended, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Excuse me, I have the sniffles, sorry. But here's, here's, here's what I want us to see. Did, did we really just read, did we really just read that Jesus commended a thief, a liar, if this is your first time at a church, you might be thinking, oh, I like this place. Preach it. Like, like, this is great. It seems like this is a boss who finds his employee stealing. The boss catches him in the act. And rather than beating him, he what? He high fives him. 
right? He high fives him. For what it is worth, the Julian, excuse me, the apostate Roman Julian in the fourth century used this exact parable. In the fourth century, used this exact parable to show that Jesus encouraged sin. Jesus encouraged sin and to leave Christianity because Christ's promotion of the immoral. Friends, what we have before us are some bonker verses. So then, I hope we're all naturally asking, what are we missing? What are we missing about Luke chapter 16? Well, our resolve lies in a fuller understanding of verse 13. Let's read it one more time. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. We, we, we need a theological understanding of money, of our wallets, of our purses, of our bank accounts. Jesus gave us just shy of 40 parables. 40 parables. They are all included in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But get this, one out of every three deal with money. One out of every three deal with money. Why is money the idol that Christ chose to isolate from the other idols? We thought about that. Why aren't there more parables on gossip? Why aren't there more parables on the abuse of power? Well, is it because? Is it because money is the supposed means by which we achieve any other ambition? In our culture, it is understood that money is the it is, it's the bringer of prestige. It's the bringer, deliverer of pleasure and power and sex and luxury. Ultimately, if you think about it, if you want it, it probably can be bought. Jesus knows this. So then it's important for us to know his effort in speaking about it endlessly. It's important to know that Jesus talked more about the Benjamins than heaven and hell combined. That's utter insanity. It's important to know that if money has a dominant role in the teachings of Jesus, it's because it has a dominant role within our lives. Somebody somewhere did a statistic that came to the conclusion, and it's really, it's really not that far-fetched, but simply that we spend more of our waking time thinking about money than anything else. I don't think that's that far-fetched how we acquire it, how we spend it, how we save it, how we invest it, how we borrow it, counting it, giving it, loaning it. And if you're like me, I constantly am thinking, how much money do I need for fancy cheese? This is my constant pressing, haunting question every day. How much is that fancy cheese? $12? I'll take it. <laughs> Ring it up. $26? I'll take it. And this brain domination is vastly true for those who believe in God or not. Now, if you notice Christ's language in verse 13 of chapter 16, if you noticed, it's, it's, it's very wise. These are very, very wise words. There are no mincing of words on Jesus' behalf. And so Jesus Christ, the, the prolific storyteller that he was, he sets up the antagonist by what? Personifying money. Did you notice that? He personifies money into a slaver, into a master-like figure. No servant can serve two masters. Christ is trying to have us see that money, if not guarded, can easily become God-like. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. 
So this idol, this master, possessing features and qualities that are almost human, right? Think about it. The money, if an idol, if it becomes godlike, it starts to think for us, it starts to drive us, it starts to define for us, it starts to demand of us. I like how author Eugene Peterson says it. He says, an idol is God with all of the God taken out. Meaning, an idol of any kind has all the dominion of God, right? But completely depersonalized. A derelationalized, unloving, cruel, vile master. And so if we were to do a little bit of math, um, one plus one type thing, an infection for money equals then, it becomes, it becomes our master. And we then thus, again, if we continue the math, then come to the point that we become its servant. It's that old proverb adage, money is an incredible tool, but what? A horrible, bad master. And remember context. Context is so huge if you're ever reading the Bible. The story was told in an age where a master had absolute reign over one's life. This isn't like now our employer's like our employers at the local Best Buy. He can't run our life. That's, this is not just some bad boss. A master had full domain. We can't, if we, look at this actually, I want you guys to see, look at that verse serve in chapter 13. So when Christ says you can't serve, actually that means in its original context, be owned by. So if you want to write that in your Bible, you can write in your Bibles, don't freak out. If you want to write owned by, that's what it's talking about. We can't be owned by this master. We can't be owned by money. We can't be owned by our own financial ambition or financial needs. Yet, this is something that we see as clear as the nose on our face in the global metropolis that we live in. When money is given dominion as the role of master and Lord, then men and women, any time and place, but obviously L.A., obviously here, commit to all sorts of things to get money. From the selling of one's body, to lying, to cheating, to backstabbing, to cutthroat business ethics. And the list goes on and on and on. So, maybe perhaps you're thinking, great, Casey, what you thinking? What's, what's the plan? What are you talking about then? Should we perform professional suicide? Should we burn all of our money? Should we, is money the devil? Should we all become Amish? Like, are these the type of things you're telling us to do? No, don't become Amish. No, don't burn your money. That's not what I'm telling or saying at all. First, God is not, 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 not anti-wealth or anti-money and anti-you owning a yacht, okay? He's not anti. In fact, if you own a yacht, hit me up. Like, tell me. <laughs> if you own a yacht, tell me. Do you have fancy cheese? Like, I'm, I'm curious. Let's hang out. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it forbid the possession of money or fancier things. Nowhere. If you take any time flipping through the pages of the Bible, what you'll discover is Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz, and Solomon were all extremely wealthy and walked with God. 
Now, don't get me wrong. The New Testament does have an exhortation to those who are rich, those, to those who do have yachts, to whatever it is. And I would say the, the rich is probably considered maybe, you know, to have an abundance, which I would say is the vast majority of us in this room. I want to read this from the New Testament, the book of 1 Timothy should be on your screen, starting in chapter 17. This, this is what Paul says. He goes, as for the rich, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share Share your yacht, right? And thus, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's an incredible, incredible set of verses. You see, I believe the Bible radically disagrees with the notorious B.I.G. I think you radically, mo money is not mo problems, right? There is no condemnation of money within Scripture. What the Bible condemns is an affection, an affection for money. The New Testament has these words, and I bet majority of us, maybe our life, especially if we grew up in the church, have heard that money is the root of all evil. That is not scriptural. Look at verse uh, 10, again, of, of, I believe, first, yeah, First Timothy. For the love of money... For the love of money, for love, 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 love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And where does this love come from? Well, of course, it stems and blossoms from the human heart. Our hearts have been called by theologians uh, as idol factories. I don't know if anybody's heard that term, as idol factories. These factories were established in one of the most important chapters within all of the Bible, within all of Scripture, and that's Genesis chapter 3. If we do not know or consider or understand Genesis chapter 3, every chapter following it will not make a lick of sense. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And this chapter famously holds what is called the fall of man, where mankind was offered salt water or living water, worship a personal God or a depersonalized God. And it's here we have mankind's first archetype of every single sin ever committed. Rebellion, treason, pride, and guess what? Idolatry, all within a single bite. And every sin today is an imitation, an imitation of the, of the decision that was made in Genesis chapter three, choosing something godlike to adore other than God. Every chapter since to even now our own, our own hearts are like these little, these little sweatshops continually polluting our affections. And Christ gives incredible insight, incredible, incredible insight to the fundamentals of the human heart in our verses. Look at verse 13 again. This is what Jesus is showing us about the human heart. For either he will hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to one or despise the other. There is no uh, hidden meaning. Like, give me the Greek on that. There is no hidden meaning to these words. He will hate it or he will love it. 
And that fundamental lesson that Jesus is giving us, it's that the heart cannot be divided. Our hearts are extremists. Extreme extremists. There is no middle ground with our hearts. There's no neutrality. Our hearts, there is a severe inability to give ultimate allegiance to two masters at the same time from the same heart. This is why we should see idolatry as this almost spiritual uh, adultery. Especially, especially, especially when when it comes to God and money. These two masters are polar, polar opposites. One claims walk by faith. The other claims walk by sight. One claims humility. The other one claims to be proud. One claims set your affections on the things above. The other one claims get more, get more, get more. One claims be anxious for nothing. The other claims, oh my gosh, is the great deliverer of of anxiety. One claims contentment while the other one cries out, enlarge your desires. Now, what I don't want to do is confuse anybody with these verses. For our verses today are less about the divide between God and money and erupt about the heart of a steward and the heart of mankind. These verses are about our heart. Saying, if anything holds dominion, either that be pride or riches, if they hold dominion, guess what? God does not. If they hold, or if these idols inspire our decisions, God does not. If these idols inform how we are to spend our money, guess what? God does not. For either he will hate the one or love the other. So if we could, just for a moment, I think this is probably the best spot to sort of slow our roll and to ask and do some internal examinations of what does influence or what does have dominion with the way we spend our money, the way we give our money. Whose mission are we supporting, God's or our own? Do we give to the work of the local church because of guilt or because of grace? Do we give to the local church at all? Do we look at our paycheck and say or think, God's portion of this is non-negotiable. Or do we look at God's portion of this as the most negotiable? Does God get our leftovers, financially speaking, for today? Or does he get our first fruits? You see, money, friends, and we, 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 we get this, but money it really is the great diagnostic of the human heart collective church. If any here seek to uncover and expose where idols may be hiding within our lives, Jesus tells us exactly where to find them. I don't know if you knew that. It's pretty radical. How do I know? Jesus tells us. Here, here. He marks a little X on the map for us. He says this in Matthew chapter 6, another gospel, starting in verse 21. It's a short verse, and I'll read it to you. This is Jesus speaking where he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Followers of Christ, when something becomes so important to us that it drives our behavior, it drives or commands our emotions, and if we we don't have it, we get enraged, then that could be a strong indicator that we are worshiping something other than God. Wherever your treasure is, that is where your heart is. Wherever your treasure is, that is where our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God is. Disciples makers here or those in discipleship groups, 
I would strongly encourage us to seek and to know and encourage one another in how we use our money. To ask questions and not just, oh, let's just dive into the X, Y, and Z of the scriptures. No, 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 no. Bro, sister, how do you use your money? Because that will tell us so much about the measure and the placement of our trust. And where there is deep trust, there is deep worship. Where there is deep trust, there is deep worship. That being one of the reasons, friends, I think the Bible continually, continually, continually despises and warns against the influences of idols. For one, it robs God of any of the affections, like a spouse's love for another. God says this in the Old Testament. It's, he's, he's pretty clear. God says in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. What he basically just says, I am master, that is my name. My glory I give to no, no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And second, idols promise, and I hope we get this about idolatry, idols promise what only God can deliver. Idols promise what only God can deliver. See, think of it this way. In the same way that the fire, part, the fire department would be furious with me if I went up and down my neighborhood and say, hey, Joe, next time you've got a fire, here's my number. Call me, bro. Call me. I can handle it. I've got a garden hose. I'm here for you. That's the, the fire department would be furious with me because I cannot deliver on that. It's in the same way, there's these same frustrations. You see, idols, especially financial ones, parade themselves as God, promising salvation and security and identity and love and purpose and freedom and fame and achievement. And rather than the master, that master delivering, it adds more chains and more chains and more chains of enslavement. Because friends, that master is an absolute imposter. And Christians here, I hope we, we know this. I'm speaking directly to the Christians, unrepentant presence of idols in our life not only enslave us, but in heartfelt allegiance and worship to that which is not God progressively begins to change us more and more and more. Meaning, I believe one of the primary laws of human life is essentially that we become what we worship. I believe we become what we worship. If we worship money and what it brings, then we will what? We will increasingly define ourselves in terms of it and treat people as creditors, debtors, partners, customers, rather than, especially as we learned a few weeks ago, image bearers. Now, even to the point where I would say that we become imposters in our worship here and throughout our life. So take, for instance, the Pharisees within the Bible. Many of us have probably heard who they are. If you don't know, essentially, these were middle-class businessmen. That meaning that they mingled with a common man all of the time. Why is that important to know about Pharisees? Because they had full support of the people. Full support of the people. They were extremely spiritual, extremely religious people. They, they, they were devoted to the Old Testament. The majority of them were priests. And they would constantly, like, if there was neighborhood dinners, they would be there every week. If there was diaper drives, these Pharisees would have loaded it up with diapers. You know what I'm saying? Every time. Every time. And look at verse 14. The only person who isn't eating what they're cooking was JC. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money. 
lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. You justify yourselves before men. But God knows your, what? Your hearts. God knows your idol factories. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees were imposters, but hear me, they were the worst kind of imposters because they were spiritual, religious, imposters, hypocrites, compromisers. Compromisers. Uh, there's a, one of my favorite Aesop fables of all time. It's so great. It's about when beasts and birds of the air were in war. They're at war with one another. The bat, though, tried to belong to both parties. The bat was different. When the birds were victorious, the bat would, you know, wing around and fly around saying, hey, I'm a bird. But when the beasts were victorious, he'd walk in the ground amongst the beasts and said, hey, I'm a beast. But soon, his compromising was discovered and he was rejected by both parties. Do you know what the punishment of the bat was? who had to hide himself for the rest of his days and only could come out at night. Bet you didn't know that about bats. <laughs> Little bit of zoology for you. Now, I thought this fable was very, very fitting because like the Pharisees, the temptation to compromise oneself for whatever will garner security or acceptance or justification is the coal that fuels our idol factories. See, those words justify yourself. Christ is saying to these spiritual compromises, get this, this is what Jesus just said to them. You wish to be worshipped for your worship. That is deep and dark. You want to be worshipped for how you worship. Is that a temptation for anybody here? You love and give tons of money to the church to be seen as righteous. Say everything's fine and hunky-dory. Never confess in discipleship groups. Is that a temptation to anybody here? When the Pharisees use riches to obtain the worship of man, get this, Christ foregoed and abstained his riches for a relationship with man. Friends, it's here we see why Jesus commended the unjust steward. If you've been waiting all morning, we're here. Get your pens out. Here we go. The unjust steward in this parable is applauded because he takes the money and he does something transcending with it. That is why he is applauded. So it's not a high five for dishonesty or sin or thievery. It's an exhortation for us to see that this unrighteous man does a righteous Thing with his finances. We have a, what we have before us is a steward as an unbeliever. He's an unbeliever. He doesn't know Jesus. That's what we're seeing right here. Yet, he does something, and as believers, we are to be the ones who know the value of heavenly investments, uh, godly discernment, and, and that money is just all gods and we're stewards. But he was doing that with the money as somebody who doesn't believe in the gospel, somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible. This is why verse eight says what it does or says what it says in chapter 16. It says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own than the generation, or excuse me, uh, than the sons of light. Simply, 
He invests in something that cannot be taken away. He invests in relationships. He invests in friendships. Collective church, are we starting to see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, ooze from these words? Do you see it? Jesus is a steward who abstains from money to make friends, to make relationships with his enemies. The very enemies who chose to reject or chose salt water or to trust in something else. Paul the Apostle in the book of 2 Corinthians says it way better than I ever could. And he's talking to a church and he's talking to the church about money and its use of money and its giving and faith. And he says this, and we're gonna make it personal. You'll see what I mean. Starting in verse seven, Paul says, but as you excel in everything, as you excel in everything, you know, hanging out, music, being super faithful at church, diaper drive, as you excel in everything, collective church, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this area, this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove, but to prove, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you have loved, that your love is also genuine. And rather than ending it there, which he could have on religious guilt, he gives us our invitation to worship. Verse nine, oh mama, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. If you're in this place today and exhausted and beaten up, by imposters and idols and mirages, I cannot encourage you enough to consider the way of Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus. And if greed is constantly slithering and if we're, we're coming in and out of wants and what others people have and sitting at their house and going, oh my gosh, I have nothing, whatever it might be. If we're constantly freaking out about money, if we're constantly unsatisfied, longing for more and more and more, thinking if I just had that, then be on guard, my friends, because imposters and idols are nearby. They are lurking. So we should end with the question, great, how do we destroy idols? Great. How do we completely shatter them? You don't. You can't. I can't. We can't. In our current state, there's no defeating of idols or imposters, only battling while we're on this side of heaven, it is only battling, it is only fighting, it is a daily, daily, daily war. Every time we write a check, every time we give to the church, every time we are generous, that is a war. And if idolatry is about the heart's affections and adorations and trust and satisfaction, then worship, then worship is the field that we do battle on. If we are to uproot the idol, in our life, and we fail to plant it with the love or the good news of Christ in its place, every day, that idol will continually grow back. I was sort of rocked this week thinking about our, our worship. A lot of my job as a pastor is to think about how we worship and a call to worship and our response in worship and an increase in worship, all these type of things. I'm constantly thinking about worship. And I was so shook up this week thinking about idols and idol worship that they make everything so pragmatic. 
I mean, everything's so pragmatic about worship. Like the Pharisees who gave us, who, was, I mean, who gave so practically to be seen and to be known. See, much of the church's worship to God heartbreakingly has morphed into practical activity. I was thinking about this quote from theologian Marva Don, where she said, worship seems like, worship seems like a total waste of time. Worship is a total waste of time. She says, totally irrelevant, not efficient, not powerful, not spectacular. It's not productive, sometimes not even satisfying to us. Friends, what she's saying is so razor sharp that it goes right to the heart, at least for me it did. What she's really getting at here is if we assign our worship some practical outcome like the Pharisees, then even our worship becomes and can become idolatry because its focus is no longer on God. Marva Dawn is showing us that worship does not have a practical goal for ourselves. But that's just the thing. I, mean, I think this is the thing that we've grown to think about worship in song or our time or our talent or our treasure is supposed to satisfy us. You know how many conversations I've had with people who leave churches saying the worship time was unsatisfactory? When was it supposed to... Anyway. I'm fearful for... Our, I don't want to... We, we try to very hard be on guard of a spiritual consumeristic culture because we don't want our worship to be, rather than serving God, many I believe has come to be, how does worship ex- exist to serve me? So many believe, how does God exist to serve me? How does the church exist to serve me? How does my finances exist to me? How do these pastors exist to serve me? Marva Dawn says to all of that, wrong, this is just wrong. And this is what shook me off. And she said, worship, and I like this, is a total immersion in the eternity of God's infinite splendor for the sole purpose of honoring God. This is what truly pushes back the idols and greed in our lives. This is how we do battle. We'll end with this, and I'm just gonna give us something to carry into our time of response. 1 Corinthians 10 I want to read it to you guys. Again, it should be on the screen, but this is very important for our time of response. This is so important. It says, starting in verse 14, Paul the Apostle again talking to the Corinthian church, therefore, my beloved, what? Flee from idols. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless with, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, who, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul, who wrote these words, is essentially asking this. How can we, one, or we possibly assume that if we are filled with idols, aware of idols, living with idols, unrepentant idols, then we are to approach the communion table like everything is grand cherry pie? You see, every time we take communion, here on my right and on my left, It's how did Paul say it? Every time. It's how did Paul say it? A participation in the blood of Christ. That sounds nasty, right? This is graphic, graphic imagery and diction right here. But Paul is communicating is that every time we partake of communion, we are being nourished 
and secured and satisfied by Christ alone. No other idols. Nothing, nothing else. This is what it means to share in the blood and body of Christ. We must view communion, Christians, this is for you, almost as a, I want us to see it as a banquet of sorts. So then that we come and we sit with Jesus during our times of worship and we're together as we're sitting at a banquet of benefits of his death and the participation of his blood and body. Communion was where we remember that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in communion and in worship with the gospel as our guide, idols will lose their attraction and their power. The scripture is crying out before communion today, flee from idols, beloved children of God. And if you are not there yet, if you're not there yet where you can come up to communion and do this, if you know of of idols, if you know of imposters that are present and gripping you and holding you back, would you let us pray for you today? Up against that wall, there's gonna be two people with lanyards who would love and be honored and humble to pray with you. And up against that wall, on the sides of this Pirates of the Caribbean shelves. On the sides over there, there's going to be two people who would be humbled and honored to pray with you. Go to them for anything, but go to them and say, I, I need to battle. Because church, let us remember, this is a battle. And our time of response right now is where the war rages. Amen? Let's pray.